Welcome to episode 23 of the podcast of Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Chichi Boy. Chapter 23, Death Creeps Close. Judy compartmentalizes her life as a way of coping. In one compartment is her family. In another is her Bob Cajun life. In still another is her TPN-related health problems. She doesn't like one compartment affecting any of the others, but she isn't always successful in keeping her health compartment from bleeding into the other compartments. When Judy hears her friend has a cold, On a warm January day in 1980, she decides not to stop by as had been planned. Her friend understands, as the town knows that she must steer clear of infections. They can kill her. Judy doesn't like this bowing to her health needs. It puts a cramp in her social life, but it can't be helped. March is a month of wildly fluctuating temperatures and snow falls steadily. April showers bring temperatures in the teens warm for this area and an infection for Judy. She vomits. Pain flares in her muscles and joints. Chills and fever chase each other over her body, and Cliff nips into Barb Kelly's place at 8 a.m. on his way to work. Barb, he requests, just check on Judy in a couple of hours to see how she is. She's got just a wee bit of a temperature, nothing much. Barb doesn't wait a couple of hours. She knocks on Judy's front door, opens it a crack, and calls out. She hears a moan. She opens the door fully and hastens in. She finds Judy lying on the couch, clutching her chest, moaning with pain. She places her hand on Judy's forehead. It's warm. Where's your thermometer, Judy? Judy tells her. She finds it, sticks it under Judy's tongue, and waits an interminable minute. After removing the thermometer, Barb frowns and goes over to the telephone. Cliff, you've got to come home. Judy's sick. Her temperature's up to 99 or 100. I'm coming, he tells her. He appoints someone to manage the lumber store and heads home. As he drives, he considers calling CFB Trenton, but figures they won't get to her fast enough. Then he considers calling an ambulance, but they'll take her to the local hospital where he'll waste time filling out paperwork and waste breath trying to explain to them what a TPN patient is and why she must go to Toronto immediately. He figures they won't listen to him because, in experts' minds, the average Joe doesn't know anything. Judy would die waiting for them to understand her predicament. He'll drive her himself. He just hopes no cop stops him for speeding. He wheels into the driveway, hurries in, packs up her stuff, helps her out to the car, belts her in, and accelerates out of the driveway toward the 401 and TGH. He parks in the familiar parking lot right in front of the doors and looks over at his wife. Judy is out cold. He zips into the hospital entrance to find a wheelchair, and when he returns, she's conscious but delirious. He coaxes her into the chair, and he speeds her along the wide hallway toward Jeej's office. It's almost 11 a.m. Jeej, I've got trouble, he says as Jeej comes out of his office at his secretary's urgent summons. Jeej looks at Judy and exclaims, My God! He snaps to his secretary, Get Marlene, and page the resident on call. We have to get her to the ward now. He and Cliff push her the short distance to the nurse's station, and the nurses quickly admit her into the room right across from the station. Cheech asks Cliff if Judy has aspirated anything. Cliff doesn't know, and Judy cannot give a coherent answer. He tells Cliff that they're going to keep her in. 
Judy hears her doctor and wills herself to speak. She tells Cliff to go home, knowing that's where he'd rather be, working at the lumber store and waiting for her call to say that she's better. Marlene arrives. She's recently been promoted to TPN nurse, officially the clinical coordinator of her enteral and enteral nutrition program. She takes Judy's vitals. Her temperature has shot up to 39 degrees Celsius. Her blood pressure has plummeted to 95 over 55 millimeters mercury. Cheech examines her and pronounces her extremely sick, delirious, and toxic. Blue suffuses her mucous membranes. Her bronchia are bleeding into the airway. The base of her left lung feels consolidated. Her breath crackles. Yet her G-tube is draining well and her abdomen is fine. He tells his resident to put her on tobramycin, penicillin, and cephosporin. He leaves, and Marlene stays to direct the nursing care. Judy's cough is not productive, and they need to make it so. At first, they try chest physiotherapy. Marlene explains her plan to Judy. Judy is not keen. She fights the nurses as they pull down her blanket and then the top of her hospital gown in order to clap her chest. The hard thumps hurt her ribs, and she cannot stand more pain in her chest. With each clap, she coughs against her will, until finally she spews out a green and bloody plug and then another. She breathes a little easier, but only for a moment. Judy sinks further into delirium, then into semi-consciousness. She moves erratically at irritants and picks and pulls at her TPN line, her G-tube, everything. The nurses put mitts on her hands and Marlene realizes that chest physiotherapy has become impossible to perform. They have to suction her. She tells Judy, who lashes out. Hoping her tone and logic will calm her down, Marlene explains in her soft voice that they have to suction her in order to make her better. Judy doesn't agree. Marlene goes ahead, though. She directs her nurses to hold Judy's limbs down as another nurse sticks a big tube up her nose and rams it down the back of her throat and down into her lungs. They use air suction to pull out the killer secretions. It irritates her nose and makes her lungs feel like they're being turned inside out. She strains hard against the holds. Marlene worries that deep down in her memory, Judy associates being held down with cats flying out of the ceiling toward her a hallucination from the early days of 1970 when she was also tied to the bed. She had told Marlene many years later about this terrifying hallucination. Stop, Marlene commands. The nurse pulls out the suction device and the others let go of Judy's limbs. Judy grows quiet. After a few minutes of calm, Marlene explains again to Judy that they have to do this procedure, that the secretions have to come out. They restart. News of Judy's distress spreads throughout the hospital, and George wonders if the pharmacy had played any part in her acute infection. Were our solutions clean? He reviews the pharmacy protocols. After being part of keeping Judy alive all these years, he, like Gigi and Marlene and Judy's TPN friends, cannot accept her dying, particularly if he had contributed to her death. He had not. Gigi keeps in constant touch with Marlene and comes along to check up on her whenever he can. Marlene fears that they will lose her. Jeej doesn't speak his fear out loud, and as the two watch her from the doorway, they discuss the possibility of sending her to respiratory ICU. Her lungs cannot expand properly, and if they grow even more solid, they will not oxygenate her bloodstream, and she may need a ventilator to breathe for her. Not yet, they decide. After four days of touch-and-go, Judy improves. Her spirit and the entire staff's coordinated care have beaten death again. She opens her eyes and they are clear. She calls Cliff, knowing exactly where he'll be, to tell him that she's fine.
He'd been worrying and wondering for days and is relieved to hear her voice. They restart her TPN. As the blue recedes from her lips, yellow appears. The sepsis probably caused her jaundice, and it too gradually disappears. As soon as she can sit up without feeling dizzy, she heads out of her room to make her regular rounds. She wheels her pole to other rooms on the ward, spending the rest of her two-week stay gossiping with old friends and telling new lifeliners that their situation is no big deal, and asking them to look at how well she's doing and to celebrate being alive. She visits a chapel on Sunday. Jeej discharges her with instructions to the pharmacy to increase her calories from 1,800 to 2,300 and to add daily vitamin A. He notices xanthalasma and decides to look into cholesterol-free liposin as an alternative to intralipid, which contains some cholesterol. In the end, he decides against it. Judy brings his attention to dryness in her vagina and asks him to have her endocrine function tested. He obeys. Back at home, she happily slips back into her usual routine, but ill health stalks her still. Wheels of red erupt on her skin for a couple of days. Then the gentamicin she's using makes her unsteady. And finally, she complains to Jeej that she has a urinary tract infection. At the hospital, he takes a culture and suggests that she go on ampicillin, depending on the results of the culturing. He dictates a long letter to Da Costa on May 9, 1980, relating this entire story. Judy does not speak this knowledge to anyone, but she knows her time of good health is over. You have been listening to Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Gigiboy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigi Boy.